Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very, very happy to have you here today. On today's episode, I am joined by my friend and writer, Howard Axelrod. Howie teaches creative writing. He's the director of creative writing at Loyola University in Chicago. And I've had him on the podcast before um, to discuss his memoir of living two years in solitude in the woods of northern Vermont just after he graduated from college. That, that book is called The Point of Vanishing. But today, Howie joins me to discuss his new book, The Stars in Our Pockets. And the theme of this book is one that is very near and dear to my heart. It's something that I think about a lot. And, and if I were to put it in, in, a, in one sentence, I would say the theme of this book is examining the, the negative, deleterious effects that the digital world is having on our inner world specifically on our attention, our capacities related to good attention, such as compassion and empathy, and more broadly, how the, as Howie describes it, the inner climate crisis or attentional collapse that is facilitated by the way we interact with our digital world, that this inner climate crisis is, is really degrading our ability to generate meaning and, 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 and create a healthy sense of self from. So there's a lot in this conversation. I'm very excited to share it with you. And as I say at the beginning, one of my hopes here is that in listening to the content of the book, listening to how we talk about the book, that you'll be inspired to pick up your own copy of The Stars in Our Pockets. Now, there's a link for you in the show notes. Let me try to make that easy. But um, <clears throat> we are coming into the holiday season, and this is a time of gift giving and I would say Howie's book is the perfect gift for anyone in your life that you would classify as a deep thinker, someone who aspires to living deeply, to really probe the deeper questions of life and existence and consciousness, um, to do that with an infusion of poetry and literature and historical perspective. Howie's book is a wonderful uh, gift in, uh, that would tick off many of those boxes. As one of the reviews says, uh, quote, this slim, powerful book is a meditation about what happens to consciousness when people spend large swaths of time on screen. Poetic, ruminative, and never preachy, this book is a game changer for readers who yearn to see beyond 240 characters. So this might be a great gift to yourself, and this might be a great gift for anyone in your life, again, who um, values attention, who values the qualities that of heart that come from good attention. It's a wonderful compliment to anybody on the, the contemplative meditative path. Of course, you don't need to be a meditator or a yoga practitioner to appreciate this book. Anybody that values their attention, anybody that is concerned about the effects that their digital life is having on their inner world, on their inner attention, this is a book for them. So uh, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, and I really hope you're inspired to consider ways to preserve or rehabilitate your own attention. So I hope you enjoyed today, and without further ado, I once again bring you Howard Axelrod. Today I am with Howard Axelrod. Howie, great to see you and thanks for coming on the podcast again. Great to be here, Josh. 
So I have been looking forward to talking to you on, in, on this particular topic for a, a while now, over a year. And I think I even intended to interview you about your new book that was published last year called The Stars in Our Pockets. The subtitle is Getting Lost and Sometimes Found in the Digital Age. And and I had great intentions of getting you on the show and talking to you about this, this really important book that you wrote. And then in the middle of COVID, I moved house a few times. There's life disruption. Didn't have Wi-Fi for a while. <laughs> kind of lived a life that you might remember from the woods in Vermont. <laughs> um, but towards the end of the summer, I, I really was able to, I would say, immerse myself in your book. And there's a couple of things I, I want to mention up front before we start talking about it. One is that you know, I know you as a friend, but I, I also know you as an as a writer, someone that I read with seriousness. You know, it, it's like I, I have a few other friends that maybe have written books, but there's something about the way you write that I would say, and this is a compliment. Like, there are a few few writers that have dramatically changed the way I see the world just by reading their book. And you know, I put someone like P.G. Woodhouse up there. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite fiction authors is Martin Amos. Um, yeah. His his lens of writing just I see things through his through his eyes for a while. But you really have a I think a unique voice, a unique, very unique perspective on being and life. And um, I know we share a mutual friend who's the pianist whose music is featured on the podcast, Aaron Goldberg. And I remember talking to Aaron about your new book. And I think he threw around the term that you know, how he's a prophet. You know, he, he really, he saw that you were, you were speaking to something that was in desperate need of being addressed and healed in a way. And, and namely that's our attention. Um, the, the other night I was talking to my partner about the, the conversation I was preparing to have with you. And, um, I would even move it beyond profitable, but I, I sense that you're like a priest of perception and, and forgive the alliteration there, <laughs> but in a very real way, you know, when I read you and, and, it, and it lasts for quite a while, it, it changes literally how I feel and, and look upon everything, including what's in my, my, you know, my own being, not just the external world. And there are a lot of books out there right now and voices of people who are speaking about the, you know, the ills of the attention economy, the ills of social media, the ills of gadgetry, people like Cal Newport, who, you know, speaks about, he kind of has an engineering approach to making sure you live a deep life um, and not being sucked into the shallows. Uh, there was an art teacher that I interviewed for the podcast, Jenny O'Dell, who wrote an interesting book called How to Do Nothing. And she was really getting into some of these same questions of perception and um, and how we potentially can, can keep ourselves habilitated or rehabilitated. <laughs> um, but you, your, your book really, I think, is it, it's a unique treatment of this topic of, you know, what is the digital world doing to our mind. And in the opening introduction, you refer to this as a, I think as a climate, a crisis of climate change, of internal climate change. Yeah. And as I said, before we started talking, 
uh, before we started taping, I said, my, my main intention, and, and, I, and I'm going to sound like an evangelist here, but my main intention is I want as many people that I can signal to, to read, to get and read your book. And I'd like to have this conversation with you to, to motivate <laughs> that action on their end. So first off, thank you for this work. Um, I was trying to think myself how to characterize the book and, and I would maybe pitch that to you as your, as the first question, like how it's not quite a, it's not self-help so much. It's not so much a diatribe against technology. It's, I, I kind of felt read it as a poetic lament about <laughs> capa yeah, like capacities that are dying. Um, I think that's, that's fair. It's been described. So I, I see reviews every now and then, and people generally describe it by what it's not. It's, it's not a diatribe. It's not a Jeremiah ad. It's not a polemic. Um, but people have a harder time saying what it is. And I think you, you're right. There's something elegiac about it. I, I do talk about some of the effects of spending a lot of time online and what it's like um, to be living or to be trying to live in really two environments for the first time in human history. The online environment, um, which our brain responds to as though it is a physical environment. Um, and then the, the offline environment. Um, so I try to talk about that and how some of the traits we develop or our brains just adapt towards when we're online are not so helpful or not so adaptive for our offline world. Um, but I also try to spend a lot of time talking about what happens if you are able to pay attention, if you are, if you are um, nurturing what the brain is capable of offline. And I, I think that's part of what's unusual about the book. That there, are, there are plenty of books that chart the perils of online life, but increasingly rare are the books that celebrate what happens if you are able to nurture your attention, nurture your memory, um, if you're able to find your way, if you're able to orient without using a GPS and, and what that does for your, not just for your brain, but for your sense of yourself as a human being. And so that maybe that's the part that you're talking about. That's the, the elegiac part. Yeah. You know, as you're saying all that, I'm, I'm kind of reliving my experience of reading the book. <laughs> and uh, one of the, I think there's a phrase that Jenny O'Dell used, but she, she compared art or certain kinds of art to kind of a perceptual prosthetic that it, that it, that it kind of guides you to, to see things in a particular way. And I'm using that idea correctly and, and reading your stuff uh, and, and hearing how you celebrate these particular capacities of perception, attention, exploration, curiosity, yeah. uh, has, at least with me, this reader had the effect of really aligning my own lens with, with those qualities in a way that was, you know, it's like, you're seeing the world. <laughs> I thought this the other night, like, have you ever, ever seen the movie being John Malkovich? I haven't. No. Oh, you haven't seen that movie? No, people tell me to see it, but I, I yeah, yeah. I, I just rewatched it. Yeah, it's yeah. a real, it's 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 very clever. But 
so do you know the premise? I, I try to keep this short then. Basically, there's this there's this office uh, building where there's a, a half floor between, I, f- I forget what two floors, but there's this sort of liminal half floor and, and everyone has to stoop when they're working there. But there's this little portal in this half floor office and these two guys discover it or, and when they go into the portal, they discover one by one that they, they come through the portal on the other end within John Malkovich's head. So they, they occupy John Malkovich's experience for 15 minutes. And, and, and that's sort of what I feel like reading your book is like being Howard Axelrod, (laughs) which as, as listeners should know, we, a, we talked about your previous memoir before, um, uh, on your time of living two years alone and in, in solitude in Northern Vermont, um, that experience no, undoubtedly shaped you and, and the conditions around what led to that shaped you. Um, in the book jacket, the, of your recent book describes you as a, uh, you emerged from the woods as a Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you emerged from, from that time in, in a, in a very advanced like the technological leap that occurred or was occurring around that time was just, was like exploding. Right. Early and, 2000s. and it's as someone who, who's my own life is sort of stretched across those, those developments, but staying in, in society while that's happening. Um, you know, I could have, I was aware of the addiction to say the phone or to social media and, and all those nefarious things, but there was no easy way to remember the felt sense of the capacities that you write about until I read your book. Right. And and there was something that the way you convey it that, and I have some passages maybe we can read from that um, I think really, and I, and I just think about the younger generation, the the kids these days that, you know, have grown up with a, a cell phone more or less in their hands um, that don't have a reference point for mm-hmm. time, landscape, interpersonal engagement that is not mediated by the presence or influenced by the presence of these devices. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that's a key point, and I and I was I wasn't thinking so much about those folks when I was writing the book. I was thinking. I mean, I guess in a selfish way about myself and about just how it feels to experience the world when you're not, like I was saying before, when you're not uh, glued to a phone and when you're, when you're all these capacities have time to, to strengthen. I mean, especially when I was living in solitude in the woods, I was really astounded by um, one, the variability of consciousness, you know, how much the brain does adapt um, that I hadn't expected and can adapt in ways that are, I guess, you know, it depends where you're looking from, what kind of judgment you're going to make. But if you're interested in being able to pay attention for a longer period of time or having greater access to memory or um, having better orientation skills, then the brain can, yeah, the brain adapts in, in those circumstances in ways that are remarkable. I, I was, I was amazed. I didn't, couldn't believe what I was able to remember. I would play this game at night I think you've mentioned this at some point when I was lying by the wood stove just to occupy myself because there was no TV and no computer. Um, I just remember my walk to school as a kid. I lived, I don't know, half a mile from this elementary school. And and I just wanted to see if I could remember all the houses. But as I was leading myself 
along that walk, I could remember cracks in the sidewalk. I could remember which trees were where. All, just all kinds of things were, were available. And, and it became a kind of self-hypnosis. Like, you know, obviously the, the flagstone walk outside my house was very easy to remember because I was walked on that many, many times. And then from there, I could just see the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing. And, um, and I, I think if part of that was just needing something to occupy my attention because there was no TV, but part of that, of course, was that day and the day before and the week before and the month before, there had been so little coming in. I mean, all I was seeing on a daily basis was the woods where I was walking, the, the, the pile of logs that I was getting the wood from to make this, the fire. And um, so in one way, there was tons of stuff that was coming in, but there was very little coming in that I didn't, that I needed to block out. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of city life or modern life, that there's tons of stuff. What our attention has has to develop or has to adapt towards isn't so much being able to let stuff in, it's being capable of blocking, filtering. Um, and now, of course, online, there's, I don't know how many images, um, how many words, I, I saw this thing that said most people now see more words per day, and more words per day flash before their eyes than Shakespeare read in his whole life. <laughs> it's just like, no wonder we're having a hard time remembering um, so anyway, uh, what I'm saying is not having to, to perform that kind of enormous task. And, you know, our brains, most of our brains have to perform every day with just filtering so much. I was then able to, my, or my brain, I mean, I wasn't really trying to do this. My brain was then open to letting in a lot more um, in my, you know, in the present moment, in my daily life as I walked around, but then also, I guess, with access to memory. Um, it was yeah, like it was actually, safe. more the more the gates, more the doors could open, and as more the doors opened, um, you know there was a lot more. There was just a lot more um, beauty. There was a lot more to uh, to enjoy. And and for those that haven't listened to that conversation we had about your time in the woods, um, I think a few details are are relevant for the imagination of the audience listening because you know i met you shortly after you came back and and you i gotta say in my my own life you function as a kind of riddle like in the riddle it's like how did he do that because i've always i think like some many romantic types i've always had this idea of living in closer to nature and going to solitude and i was never able to personally uh, do that alone. Like I always needed to be in a, like with others in a retreat environment or with a, f- a friend or two. Um, but in your particular circumstance up in the woods, you, as I recall, you didn't bring anything to read and you didn't bring anything to write with, and you didn't have music. You didn't have television. I think you indulged in maybe a, a, a biweekly telephone call with a, a family member or a friend, but that was quite minimal given the amount of time you were there. And I say all that because, you know, while I was reading stars in in our pockets and um, I was also on a staycation at my new place in Maine, um, which is fairly remote. And I was trying to, you know, live a little bit of what you did in the woods. And you know, at first, I could—I can't tell you the the mountain of anxiety that it created 
that 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 I had to come to terms with. I mean, it was just sort of this. I could just feel my the impulses to to turn the the phone back on to 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 boot the computer up to check something to feel yeah. that I'm I exist or that I matter or that I'm that I'm relevant. Yada yada yada. And I'm not even talking about social media. No, that, that's but just the devices themselves. Um, and like you're describing, but I should say bef- before I get into what I discovered a little bit on that was that I've also been concerned about my own memory, like, like large sections of my life feel really blurry. They don't, and, you know, there's no real like rational reason or, or causal explanation for why things aren't sharper. Um, and I'm also, I've also been concerned about my growing in, inability to pay attention when I'm reading you know, just reading a book, which is an activity I, I, I cherish, not has not been easy in the last, I'd say, 10 years. Um, and just after a few days of kind of going through um, detox on the staycation, just as you're describing, I started finding these exquisitely rich, detailed, saturated memories coming back that completely like sort of I was like, I didn't know I had that in me. I didn't know I, you know, I, I could still hold on to that kind of thing. And then also just reading itself was becoming much more pleasurable because my attention give, that I would give to the, the, the text was um, able to pick up was actually being communicated. Yeah. Don't smoke. I'm not sure if this is true, but don't, don't smokers, if they quit after a while, talk about their taste coming back, food tasting more. Yeah, I, th- I like being able I, to taste a variety of taste that they hadn't really tasted when they were smoking a lot of cigarettes. Yeah, maybe I'm making that up, but anyway, well, it it well, seems it seems like that. You know, it's like the, there's more. Um, yeah, instead of sort of the the carnival of of computer stuff, online stuff, which is designed to be um, yeah addictive and 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 you know just impossible for our senses not to not to feel drawn to, um, you know, that the real world is, isn't the carnival. Usually it's slower. Uh, conversations happen more slowly. There's, you're not going to see, I mean, every time I open my computer now, it's set to whatever the windows default, um, photograph is. So there's always some spectacular photo of wherever a mountain scene or some animal or, and, you know, real life, every time you look out the window, isn't going to offer just a different spectacular, even if you live in someplace, even if you live someplace beautiful, you know, the scene out the window is usually the same. <laughs> it's like the same weather changes, but otherwise it's sort of the same scene. And um, so even that, you know, the, like something that isn't supposed to be so spectacular is still a, a very heightened or more spectacular thing than, you know, what would be out your real window. Um, and so it takes a while once you get away from computer stuff yeah, for your brain to adapt to the slower offerings, which are nevertheless more beautiful because they're real. We can talk about, you know, sort of what that means and why that reaches us in a different way, but it, it does, you know. Um, and then with memories too, it's like, instead of being fed all these other things, you're, you get more access to your own memories. And those also are more beautiful in a way because they're yours you know they connect to your life and then they're part of the way of making meaning and I think that's a really significant part of all this that if you are able or if you are unable to pay attention 
to much other than sort of what's flashing in front of you. And if you are unable to, to form um, long-term memories, then it becomes pretty hard to be making meaning other than out of sort of like ego for the moment meaning. Like, oh, I just got a good thing. You know, I got a good message from so-and-so. I got this thing I liked or, and that's a kind of meaning, but it's really bumpy. Things are good. You know, you go up, you go down, you go up, you go down. Um, but if you have access to, you know, long-term memories, if you're able to have perspective and reflect on things and be able to look back on what happened the past week or past month or past year, you're able to say, oh, this is some stuff that's been happening in my life. These are some patterns. You know, I want to work on this or I feel bad that I did that. I should probably try to forgive, you know, forgive someone or forgive myself or whatever. You become more self-aware and it's hard. It's really hard to do that. You know, we're talking about paying attention to sort of the things around us, but it's like, it's very hard to pay attention to your own life, really, if you can't pay attention in, in the moment. Right. Yeah. No, it, it it's not just that when you're on the device or on the screen, that your attention is being kind of hijacked or, 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 or uh, usurped by all sorts of things blinking and flashing at it. I think one of the things you you really speak to in the book is how the that activity and and the world of being in the digital world is 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 kind of a boundaried thing that that in the crossing of the border beyond the digital into the real world that our attention doesn't doesn't necessarily make that transition or that that border crossing easily. Right. Yeah, that's totally it. And that's something so people talk a lot about the attention economy and what is your what is your attention worth you know for so many clicks you're being followed by whatever you're being tracked and then your data is being sold to advertisers but people don't talk about how your attention is being devalued as you're do as you're spending all that time online depending on what but usually it's being devalued so then when you go when you turn everything off and you go outside you go for a walk you go look around not only have you lost the time to whatever you know, YouTube uh, um, black hole you just fell into. You also your attention now when you're walking around is is has has it's not as good. You're just you you can't look at things for as long. You're you're probably less patient. Um, what's whereas, that? What's that? What's that famous line that Thoreau had about walking in the woods and how he it's sort of like a, a lament that it would take him a certain amount of time just to. Four hours. I think he's like I, I need. Maybe it's six. It's either, yeah, something like if I haven't, or no, four. I think it's like if I haven't walked four hours in the woods every day, then I'm, you know, then I haven't gotten what I've needed, basically. Like my attention is not what it should be. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, you know, it's like an attention athlete, basically. It's like a musician saying, um, you know, if I don't, if I don't practice four hours a day, I'm not going to be, you know, I won't be at the level where I should be. And that's, you know, for, for people, well, for Thoreau, you know, it was thinking so much about what is the quality of his, his attention? What is he able to notice? What is he able to make of what he notices? How is he able to connect that to long-term schema he has, like long-term um, sort of deep uh, ways of understanding the world? You know, it's one thing to notice a pretty flower. It's another thing to notice it and see in it, see in the, the way it's... Um, 
way it's constructed or something about, I mean, he was, he, he was a botanist. So like some, something about what you're noticing that seems that offers you a kind of truth about life. Um, and not just like every rose has its thorns, you know, but some, some, and he wasn't seeing a lot of roses in the Conquer woods, so I should pick a better example, but you get it. I mean, seeing something, something maybe about the stillness of the lake um, and the reflections it offers and that when the lake is still, um, how it's able to take in more. Okay, so he's moving from a, a physical observation to an observation about attention itself and about state of mind. Um, and then if he can add that to something, maybe there's some quote that he has from something he read that he's been thinking about, maybe it connects with something else. And then all he can move from, so the physical observation to some sort of observation about human nature or um, about what, where he finds beauty, how he's best able to find beauty. And he's able to connect that to something, maybe some precedent that he has, whether it's a literary precedent or something else. That, that's more than just like, oh, the lake looks pretty today. Like, oh, I got a nice picture to put on my Instagram. You know, that's a different kind of attention. And if that's how you're making a meaning out of life, uh, it's through moments, observations, connecting those observations to deeper truths, connecting those deeper truths to um, sort of stored schema of the way you look at the world. And also through all that, that's also how you're finding your identity. Your identity is not that, oh, I'm the dude who can do this. It's it, Your identity is the way it feels when you're seeing something and it's moving through you when you're understanding something. And that's, that's sort of the, the dopamine hit that you are looking for rather than someone saying, you know, good, awesome job on the whatever. And yeah, you want to have walked four hours a day every day, keep your attention that open because keeping your attention that open is your way of understanding, you know, really making meaning out of your life. Um, and feeling like, you know, having a sense of belonging having a sense of belonging, like, oh, I'm part of the natural rhythms of the, of the world. And, you know, we all need that, a, a, a sense of belonging somehow. And of course, social media offers that prospect just as it takes it away. It's like, oh, you can, you know, you can connect with all these people, but, you know, they're not going to like, they're not going to be noticing you half the time. So, but you could, sometimes they might notice you, but, you know, often they won't notice you. And it, it, it's a kind of, it offers a, um, uh, a very unpredictable kind of connection and sense of belonging. Whereas other things, if, you know, can be a lot harder initially and take more time, but can give you a different sense of belonging. Um, so I, I, I moved recently, I go for a walk every morning. I, I, I live by the lake now, Lake Michigan. And so I'm, it's still fairly urban here. I mean, compared to the, compared to the woods of Vermont, it feels urban to me. There are lots of trees and the lake is beautiful, but it's, you know, I, I miss, I definitely miss being someplace where I see, let's see a great blue heron over the summer, a great blue heron every morning. And if I raise my arms up in the air, it would take wing because it thought I was going to fly towards it. Um, there's nothing like that happening here, but there are people here and um, I get to have my animal encounters with people. And it's, it's exciting just what, what happens and um, just really, you know, human, sweet human moments that wouldn't, that wouldn't be happening in the, in the woods with the heron. Um, but the, the key, I think, isn't so much, I mean, you know, everyone has their preferences and tastes. Like, do you want to be someplace more rural? And, and of course, also just the, the limitations of their lives, you know, and sort of, you know, logistics, practical realities. 
Um, but within all of that, or all of that notwithstanding, the question for me usually in sort of how, you know, how my day is going or how my week is going has to do with, you know, how open is my attention? Um, am I on the walk in the morning, whether I'm hanging out with the great blue heron or hanging out with you know, some, there, yesterday there was some old man who happened to be right outside my door when I came downstairs and he had a dog with him. And he, the dog, he started to walk away because he wanted to give me space, but the dog came to sniff and, and it was this cute dog. And so the man just, as by way of apology said, well, you could have had some treats. <laughs> and then like, he just put himself in the mindset of the dog, sort of apologized as, you know, through the dog's point of view. Um, he had a great Chicago accent, it, the, the man, not the dog. And it, it was just, it was, it was a really nice um, walk, you know, first moment of walking outside. Um, and so I, yeah, like the, the four hours, the four hours every day, I wish I could do that. Um, there have been times in my life when I could. And, but I also think that it's not just, you know, the woods that warrant trying to keep your attention open. It's not just, oh, if you're in a beautiful place, you should do this because, you know, there's going to be all these birds or there's going to be a still lake or it's everywhere. Everywhere warrants that and everywhere rewards you if you're able to do it. Well, that, that, that actually harks to the, harkens back to the, the title of the podcast, the name of the podcast, which is Everyday Sublime. Um, and I, I keep yeah. thinking about that, that the sublime doesn't transcend this world that saturates it, whether, you know, I would say whether you're in an urban setting, in a rural setting, in a suburban setting, it's the, the quality of attention that is able, and this is, I think, really a, a theme that is, is, is a thread through the book, but it's an attention that's able to receive. Right. And, and you, you kind of hinted at it earlier just then. Um, but I, I do want to open that up a little bit. What does it mean to have an open, receptive attention? And how is that, how might you recommend that being, you know, practice? I mean, this is, this relates to what I try to do in meditation formally, but one of the things I've become aware of is, and this I think also speaks to the influence of the technology is that you can meditate regularly and consistently like for 30 minutes or an hour a day, but what I'm what I realize is that if you haven't organized a boundary around the influence that this other technology has, you're basically, you know, kind of proverbial throwing a deck chair off the Queen Mary. It's just not going to do that much yeah. to the impact on your mind. Like to sit just for 30 minutes a day. It really is how are you living your life in general? Right. And so I'm interested in, in in exploring with you this 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 idea of open attention and, and some of the capabilities that come with that or, or, or neural capacities that, that come with that. Yeah. Um, but the other thing I just want to mention is that to listeners that if this feels like well, what we're describing feels terrifying, like how could I do that? You know, I wouldn't have enough time. I wouldn't get everything done. What I found is it's the exact opposite. And, you know, I, I, I so I moved to the woods kind of and for several months, I was continuing to live like I did in the city, which is like more or less online a lot, you know, logging, checking my phone and, and seeing that I'm staying on the phone for like four plus hours a day, which is just utterly, you know, dis disastrous. Um, that brought that down to 30 minutes now, which is, I'm proud to say, That's but, great. but the amount of time that the way time opens up 
and a sense of softness of time that that I'm not as pushed, put upon, that there's a way that the, the day is much more relaxed and a, a gentle flow from one activity to the next. And that whatever I'm doing, I'm actually not a hundred percent there, but I'm, I'm, I'm like noticeably more engaged and satisfied with what's happening. Yeah. Um, and I just, so that's part of why, you know, again, I just want to make these comments because I, I attribute them all to literally the the kind of the teaching that I received from from your writing. And um, again, I want to encourage people to to get this book and and to consume it in a, in a, in a very um, wholehearted, sincere way because um, it's 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 just it's that kind of book. Um, so you have you you had some interesting metaphors in the book around attention itself, and I think at one point you compare attention or awareness to an airport. And I can, let me see if I have, uh, where was it? It's early, that's like, uh, it's in the intro. It came up, um, I thought, I think it came up towards uh, the discussion of the spiritual self. You're talking about oh, the, okay. the spiritual self. I, I know. Being, okay, go ahead. Yeah, you go it, ahead. I, 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 it, was, it was a motif that came up at different times in the book, I think. Oh, um, right, right. Yeah, you're talking about William James. Yeah. Um, let me read this back to you. Um, it's You say, none of them touched on the elusive central part, the part I was getting familiar with as a teenager at night in bed. So you're talking about other other descriptions of identities. Yes, exactly. Other other descriptions of self. I I realize that the quote's a little out of context here. So that's what you're talking about. Other like models of the self, but none of them touched on the elusive central part, the part I was just getting familiar with as a teenager at night in bed, the part I didn't really get to know until after my eye accident, retreating, uh, retreating to it many, sorry, retreating to it morning after morning looking out my dorm room window because the street and the sky looked different. And it was the only part of me that felt the same. It wasn't a particular thought or feeling, but just the most simple point of contact between me and the world around me, a wordless, effortless receptivity to a passing pigeon or a passing thought, a kind of personal airport where perceptions or ideas came in for landing or they didn't. An, or, an airport whose runways would change sometimes depending on my interests or my mood or things, I didn't understand. But wh- whose land inside, oh, sorry, but whose land inside me was the same as it had been night after night in my bed as a teenager, a place with a distinctive atmosphere, even when the weather changed, even when I drifted far away from myself even when it was just a string of bleary runaway runway lights through the fog. Um, that's to my ears as a, as someone who's kind of practiced meditation for a long time, this, this, this description of awareness is, is, is just crystal clear in terms of its alignment with the kind of awareness that, at least the systems of practice that I've done emphasize, um, but it's it's said in a totally unique and 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 wonderful way, um, and it's 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 the it's the thing that at least in Buddhism we try to take refuge in, 
that it's it's this this core self that is not defined by any attribute or a thought or a feeling but is the it's, it's sort of the, the the primary principle through which everything is experienced and 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 integrated um but so i would like to, to open up that metaphor of the airport because i, I think it's, it's one that I never heard before, but I think the more I've sat with it and listened to or read you read you how I, how you wrote about it, it it really does convey the, this relationship between you know where are the landing strips? what are the where, what is able to receive something and 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 this relates to I think your own creative process and and meaning making where the meaning and creativity that I think you, speak to so nicely is something you feel like you're receiving as a kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is, but it's a kind of an, it's like insightful visitations of things that come to you. It's not so much that you're, you're banging them together consciously and trying to make them fit and, and come and, and come up with a creative idea. It's just that it, these are occurring to you through this open space of listening with your, this wide open awareness is this what I was sort of getting from what you were yeah, describing. Yeah, that's, that's very much it. And the, the job. Yeah. So I feel like my job as a writer is to part of my job. And I guess as a human being too, like throughout with this four hours a day of walking is to keep those, those landing strips clear you know, to, to, to try to, to try to organize my life in such a way that there's stuff that wants to land there, that that I'm, you know, that there's, that it's not all jammed up or something, you know, something that would prevent things from landing. And sometimes that happens, you know, if I'm busy or I've got a lot of stuff to do, uh, I had the, uh, bed frame delivered this morning for my bed and then had to wash, like, just, you know, do all the, this, stuff, daily life administration stuff. And um, so, and I've been hoping that I was going to be writing and then, you know, there's stuff that comes up. But um, I do, I think that's, it's, that's a really big deal, you know, how, how to keep, how to keep yourself clear. And I, I think for me, it was not, I mean, there could be a spiritual imperative behind that. Um, I think for me, it was also originally like after my eye accident, part of it was a kind of identity imperative. It was like, and, and even, even just maybe a security imperative, like, okay, freak accident. I'm playing basketball. Kid's finger goes in my eye. I'm blinded in my right eye. Just bizarre. And so after that, I think I'd always wanted to have sort of the widest lens on things. I always wanted to feel like I could see what was happening, but then, you know, after physically, physically being blinded in one eye, I really wanted that just for security. I wanted to be, you know, to sit at the back of a room to see, have everything in front of me. And there's some version of that. I mean, that's an analog for perspective more broadly, wanting to, to sort of be as far back, um, to have as much in front of me as possible. And, and by doing that, you know, that thing about looking out my window every morning in college, but before just sort of running into the, you know, the, the tides of people going up to class and wanting to see it, you know, wanting to be able to sort of see what was happening in front of me. So there's a kind of caution, you know, that, that's there and a, uh, a vigilance. But I think that 
that attention of caution or of, um, of vigilance started to move towards an attention of wonder, attention of curiosity, where it wasn't just like, it wasn't so much I felt scared I, if I didn't look out the window, if I didn't see what was coming, I was going to get, you know, knocked into or hit again or something. Um, and I think people who have been through a lot of trauma, especially like phys- you know, physical trauma, sometimes have very heightened attention, but it's it's not, you know, it's an, it's an attention of caution. It's an attention of fear. And that they pick up a lot of details. Um, they're picking up all kinds of things that most, you know, that other non-traumatized people are not picking up. But it, it doesn't often feel so great. It's not so nourishing or satisfying. It's just like, you know, can I just make it through the day? Um, and I, I, I wonder, and I haven't thought about this too much, but I, at some point maybe I'll have to write about it. Or it, To me, it seems pretty important. You know, how is it that you can move from an attention of caution, fear, vigilance, and use that, ex, that heightened attention you have and have it slowly transform into attention of wonder, attention of curiosity, you know, so then your landing strips are open, not for just potential threats, which is what happens with the first kind and everything else is irrelevant. Like all you're looking for is potential threats. And then to have that shift towards openness towards, you know, what your landing strips are open for are, you know, beauty, wonder, and, you know, whatever, like if you work for me, certainly if I'm working on a book, the things that start to land, I think, oh, that could apply, that could, you know, fit in the scene here. I could use that overheard in a conversation there. That guy with the dog, can I fit him in somewhere in my novel? No, probably not. Like that dog's just gonna have to trot off somewhere else. But um, you know, once you have a landing strip that is, it becomes a kind of organizing principle for everything you're taking in. And that's that's then your days become more meaningful. You know, when I'm working on a larger project, it's, it's something that's really helpful because then um, when I overhear a conversation or when I notice something, you know, with the quality of whatever, whatever things are sort of entering me, they then have, you know, it's not just, oh, that's a pretty thing or that's an interesting thing. There's also then that deeper, like Thoreau's working on that, you know, how am I trying to talk about truth and truth of perception? And I can be thinking about, oh, I'm working on this novel. How do, they, do these things apply in some way? Do they not? And and that's, I think that's really useful too for attention. Having some sort of deeper gravity. I'm going to switch from the, the airport metaphor or like underneath the landing strip, I guess like some sort of magnet or something to pull. You know, it's not just that you're open, your attention is open, but that there's something in you that's, um, that you're aware of that you're trying to feed. And, and as you're trying to feed it, you will start to attract things to it, you know, you will start to attract, will start to notice your perception will start to be aware of things that it that you need. And so it, it's not just like, you know, use uh, like the beginning of um, beginning of the Odyssey, sing in me muse and tell me the story of, right? Um, it's the beginning of the Odyssey, isn't it? Or the Aeneid? Sounds right. Uh, it, but anyway, it's, 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 it's not been just like every morning, you know, oh, oh muse singing me. It's, it's like, uh, you trying to keep my attention open, but also in particular, being aware of what I'm, having some sense of, like a broad sense of what I'm looking for. Um, anything that might apply to, you know, that stuff, stuff that has to do with this novel or whatever I'm working on, that's helpful. So for most people, I think it's like, whatever you're, you're thinking about, whatever's on your mind, whatever you're trying to, work through, sift through, 
letting your attention, being aware that you can use almost anything. What if you can make the associative leap? If you, so like Thoreau looking at a still pond, he can use that to think about attention and clarity and because he's been thinking a lot about that. And so, you know, not just thinking like, oh, the thing I'm trying to understand is say my relationship with my sister. And then only looking for that, you know, and say like self-help books about relationship stuff. Or, you know, being aware that something that you see might remind you of her or something you overhear might, you know what I mean? They're like just being open to experience and then having faith that you will be able to make connections, associations um, that will help you on your way. You know, like letting so much of what's happening around you, like the everyday sublime, but also the everyday guide. You know, like we're all sort of stumbling around for certain things that are really important to us or things that we, you know, that pain us, things that we're trying to figure out. Or, and we can hammer, like we can just keep going back to those things in our minds and like circle them and circle them and circle them and circle them. And like, you know, is there something different? Is there something different? Is there something different? And of course, every time it's the, you know, it's like, you're not getting anywhere or you think you're getting somewhere, but it's really just the same. Um, but if your attention is really open and you're aware that you, you can be getting help um, from all kinds of, all kinds of places, that's, you know, it takes the pressure off and it's, it opens your mind. It's like, oh, what might be useful to you isn't just going to happen, you know, in that 20 minutes when you're thinking, you know, when you're reading your self-help book or thinking specifically about that one thing. What might help you is, you know, is probably going to be something indirect coming from somewhere else. And then, you, you know, your attention sort of opens, it quiets down. It's like, oh, who knows what I'll find here or here or here. I don't have to just, you know, be, be thinking about this one thing in this one way all the time as I walk around blind to what's around me. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the little I know about uh, creative insight development uh, you know, there's, there's sort of this standard formula they suggest where it's like focus on the thing you're working on intensely, give it your all, but then step away, focus on something else, do something, you know, take your dog for a walk, take a shower, mow the lawn. And yeah. And sort of in that looser field of attention, sort of disparate things can get stitched together in creative ways and present themselves to you. I want to go back a little bit into what you're saying there in the first part. There's a lot you just mentioned, but you spoke about your own trauma getting blinded when you're in college. And there was a passage in the book where you said, you know, most people, I think, I think this is true for most people. Um, have a, have those experiences may not be losing an eye, but something yeah. completely disruptive uh, to their normal perception of safety in the world where you, the phrase you use is the, the, the I think the bedroom floor is not stable. You know, mm -hmm. like there's, there's, there's something that shakes you so much to your core that the bedroom floor isn't stable. And you, I think you found that this quality of attention was the and, and and that you discovered and and um celebrated was the thing that allowed you to become stable both in the world and within yourself again and and i think that my buddhist ears kept hearing you know this is this is the the primary encounter with with what the buddha referred to as dukkha just the difficult to bear aspects of life the thing the parts of life that involve loss 
that involve disappointment, that involve trauma. Um, and, and I think you started speaking just there about how, like, what is, what facilitates that transformation of the awareness from being in a state that's vigilant, trying to avoid future traumas and just feeling on guard and threatened by everything that's coming at it to the awareness that is actually, uh, you know, feeling safe, that feels uh, secure, that, and that is actually able to then perceive the wonder and the mystery and the, uh, the possibility um, in life. And that, that is a very, I think that's a spiritual transformation. That's a, that's a transformation of a being from someone who uh, is defined by maybe the content of what's landing into the, on the on run on the runway versus the ground of their being that is part of what allows the runway to receive. Um, and I, you know, I, it just strikes me as particularly in light of the pandemic and, 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 and the people I, everyone I speak to, including myself, everyone is struggling with, with their version of what is, what's so hard right now. Yeah. And, and I can't help, but just imagine that you use the word, the metaphor of smoking. And it's one that I've often thought like social media gadgetry or kind of a social carcinogen in a way. Um, but how, how much are, these systems, these, these, these technologies erode our attention to be able to, to, to make that, that transformation that you're, that you're describing from one of vigilance and fear, kind of a fear-based model into more of one of wonder. So I'm not going to just leave you there, but the, the, there was a, a capacity that you highlighted in the book. And I think you got it from John Keats called a negative capability. Right. And I think it relates to, I think it's, I, I actually, I wonder if you, you think about this, but to me, it seems like that capability, and we should define what that is, but seems to be the thing that I think that the transformation from vigilance and fear to wonder and awe pivots on. Like, if you don't have that capability, I don't think you're going to, a person is going to be able to, to make that, that transition or that transformation. So we can right. talk about what that. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe. So, so he used that. Keats used that term. He was writing a letter, um, and he was talking about Shakespeare. He right. was saying Shakespeare has has this has this negative capability, which is the ability to, to be open to wonder, to um, to follow curiosity, um, and to not necessarily know where something is leading. I don't know if you have a quote there. I have it somewhere. Here it is. Uh... <laughs> I've been following this, doing this practice of, I, I copy out the most important lines that I underline in a book into note cards um, recommended by uh, Ryan holiday. So this is, um, this is a new practice of mine, but it, it's quite interesting. Right. So uh, he was writing to his, a letter to his brother saying that this quality of attention of being open and observant and of being comfortable with what you didn't or couldn't know. I, I think that's the key. That's really, that's the key to it. It's it's not just to be comfortable with like curiosity and wonder. Yeah, yeah. To, to really stay within this capability, it, 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 it mandates a tolerance to uncertainty, to what's not known, what's confusing, and 
and and to me that's where i, I like i read that like that's i heard all my dharma teachers you know <laughs> ajahn Chah yeah. said this this is uncertain and to rest in the uncertainty but that's a capability that um is just not easy to come by um right but, right so because so much of that is is being comfortable with not being in control i mean that that's an enormous part of it if, if you don't know if if you know things are happening um whether it's you know you're observing something and you can't quite understand what you're seeing or if for shakespeare if, you know if you're writing something and you've got a, this whole field of metaphors and they're starting to interact in ways that you're not you know you're not like those that's part of why his, his uh, he can have these these leitmotifs and these things that build one because they're not he's not they're not what was the not where just oh, like a certain image will come back and then again and again and will play differently and and in different different plays he's got um, he's got so many different leitmotifs that that find their way through but if he had tried to plan out okay I'm gonna have uh, when Romeo sees Juliet, he's gonna for, he's gonna think of sunrise. When uh, it's too late, I'm gonna there's gonna be something. There's gonna be a conversation about whether it's the lark or whether it's you know the morning. But like what bird it is, because that's gonna signify. If you tried to plot it, it would it wouldn't have worked. I mean, even so, there's this sonnet that I've been thinking of just because of the, and I think I have it in the, maybe it's in that in that book, but just because it's fall, um, and it starts. Thou mayst behold in me that time of year, or thou mayst behold in me that time of year when yellow leaves are none or few doth hang upon the boughs which shake against the cold. So, so far it's like, okay, yeah, it's like someone's old and they sort of look like they have, you know, like some yellow leaves or not that many leaves. Or, but even that, like, thou, that time of year thou mayst, thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few. That's like, he's not just caught up with the image going to the next thing. He's like, when yellow leaves, or not, because some trees have no leaves. Or if you, it's like he hangs a couple leaves back on the tree. Just that that slowness, that's negative capability. I mean, a, a writer who, who was thinking, well, I got this great idea, like, you know, th- you know, I, I, I'm this middle-aged guy and I kind of look like a, leaf, a tree in fall where they're, you know, the, the leaves are yellow and they're not green. So he just would have hit that and moved. But Shakespeare, he can just stay with it when yellow leaves or none or few so you see it, you see like, you know, just a couple of leaves <laughs> just moving back and forth. Yellow leaves, none or few doth hang upon the boughs that shake against the cold. Okay, so that's the movement. And then the next line, bare ruined choirs where late the songbird sang. That's, that part's a you know, it's like the birds are gone too. It's not just the leaves, but one thing took him to the next. He's like, because he didn't just hop from the first thing about yellow leaves, he saw a tree, he saw none or few. And then if the few, he probably sees the breeze. So none of you doth hang, but shake it, shake it, whatever the cold, you know, shake against the cold. And then because they're shaking, he's reminded there are no birds there. And then the next line, and and then it's maybe he even hears the quiet. There are no birds, there's no song. And all that's compressed. Next line, bare ruined choirs. And also the rhythm changes. And there should be, bear should be unaccented, but it's accented because he's like, he's hitting it. There's part, part of him when he's writing, it's probably like, yeah, bear ruined choirs. So thou, in, thou mayst behold in me that time of year. So I am a contender. And yellow leaves are none or few doth hang upon the boughs which shake against the cold. 
bear, like he just punches you with it, bear ruined choirs, relate the song for sang. And then, ugh. so it, that, he, he, just to be able to track, you know, what might've been happening imaginatively for him as he was writing that, I mean, who knows, I'm just making this up. But, but for me, like if I somehow had the, the great good fortune to write a stanza like that, that's how it would have happened. It would be, you know, like I have one idea, which is the yellow leaves, and I take my time with it enough to put none or few doth hang. So then I see it, and then I see the wind. And then because I see the wind, maybe I hear the lack of bird song. And then that brings me to an even better metaphor than the, you know, thou mayst behold me that time of year when yellow leaves, like, you know, middle-aged guy, yellow leaves. That's, you know, kind of cliche, or at least now it would be kind of cliche. It's not that great, the metaphor, you know. Oh, like good job, Will, but that's not that's like not so good. But then bare ruined choirs, that's amazing. It's like mm-hmm. there used to be all this stuff singing in me, but now I'm just it's not even like the songbirds are quiet, it's ruined choirs, like a choir that's been that's astounding. That's genius. That's negative capability. Yeah, and and I mean that was that was a that was a uh an aria. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and I and I I fully appreciate that that illustration of negative capability. I'm also just thinking of it in terms of some more daily everyday daily people that are maybe aren't writers. And you know, one one of the things that leapt out at me and is is that um, that quality of, of 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 being open and receptive to uncertainty and to mystery and this is as a Chinese acupuncturist uh, or someone studied acupuncture and practice acupuncture for a while, acupuncture for a while. They, the Chinese have this notion of the, of our will that resides in our kidneys and they, they, they differentiate between two aspects of the will. There's the yang side of the will and the yin side of the will. The yang side is what we normally associate with the will is sort of the, the energy and the, the ability to chart a path and, 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 and it more or less try to achieve that path. Um, but the, the yang will wants to know and wants to control the yin will is something that they see more emerging as we age, as long as we have a reflective life that allows us to be okay and actually deeply tranquil, tranquil with uncertainty, with change, with, um, with unknowing. Um, and, and it just seemed like so much of our society, I don't want to sound like a, you know, a misanthrope here, but like so much of culture, our, our culture and, and now the technological culture um, is driving us to, to never touch a toe into the pool of that ca- negative capability. Yeah. 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 So I, I agree. So that, that, that question of how do you, that's how Shakespeare or might, how he maybe did it writing. How do we do it in our everyday lives? How do we go from like decent level metaphor to brilliant level metaphor <laughs> as a metaphor? How do we go from decent, you know, daily experience to like brilliant daily experience? Um, and not even, and you know, I don't necessarily see the need to have a metaphor coming because yeah, yeah. no, I'm the, saying right. So I'm just saying like that's that's right, hard. Right. I, I think it's I think it's hard hard to do, and I, but I also think yeah, what you're talking about has a lot to do with it. That they, those different kinds of um, will or energy. And one thing that's important is I think that almost everybody um, has had both kinds of day, both kinds of, you know, afternoons, the kind where you're, you're in, you're in the flow, 
you know, you're just, you're not pushing on anything. Things are opening up for you as you go. For a lot of people, it happens when they travel for some reason, you know, they're because they're, they're, they know things are going to be new. They know they're not going to be fully in control. And so, and maybe they get a little drunk, like they let themselves drink a little or something, you know, something, for whatever reason, they're more open to new experience. And they, sometimes it happens there. Um, but I think everybody's had that, just like everybody's had the time where you're anxious and you're trying to control stuff and things aren't going your way and you get flustered and, and you make things worse because you, um, and, you know, I think part of it is trying to recognize, like if you're going into something where you, you know there's going to be some bumps, that things are going to be a little, to sort of see it, like anticipate, oh, it's going to be, like I, I went into my office, I hadn't been to my office um, at the college where I teach in a year, a year and a half because of COVID. And I went back two weeks ago, I was teaching my first class. Before I went, I told myself, this is going to be, it's going to be bumpy. Like it's going to feel weird. Who knows how long it takes for your computer to boot up when it hasn't been turned on. And like, who knows what state, I mean, who knows what your office is going to smell like after who knows what's, you know, like with the trash taken out and who, like, who knows what's in there? Who knows what's in your mailbox? Who knows how it's going to feel to be back on, like, are you going to, I hadn't been in a room with, um, you know, 15 students in a long time. Like, would I feel safe with COVID? Would I not feel safe? Would I, you know, so to tell, to like, to tell myself in advance, this is going to be, it's going to be bumpy. Like, you're going to have some unpleasant surprises, um, but you'll probably have some pleasant surprises too. And just, you know, sort of like in advance, prepare yourself to roll with it. And, and you know, to know like, okay, you've got your basic thing, you, you're vaccinated, you've got your masks. And, like you've taught classes before, you know how to do this. That, that probably won't be too hard. And that's useful, you know, so that like, so then when the first bump hits, you know, like, oh no, I can't find a parking space. What's going to happen? I'm going to be, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's the first bump. Okay, fine. Big deal. And, and for whatever reason that day when I went in, maybe because I thought of that or maybe just because it was so nice to be back, it, it was one of those times where everything was just opening up. Like parking is usually a real pain in the ass. That just opened up. Then my thing, like an office, I saw some nice people. There were nice letters waiting in my mailbox. I got really good news that day about something. You know, there was just, I saw some students who I hadn't seen in a long time. That was really nice. Um, you know, it's like, I think that's, I mean, who knows? I could. I also could have, you know, maybe it was that I had slept well or that I ate well or, you know, it's like try to set yourself up for, being able to be in the flow where you, where you're noticing, you know, you're, you're noticing stuff. You're not just outside it. You know, you're noticing, but you're not just an observer. You're sort of feeling the current of how things are moving and you're able to be a part of it. And, and everybody's had that at some point, I think, or glimpsed it. Um, and it feels wonderful. You know, it's like, you're, you're not fighting the currents around you. You're just, you're moving with them. And that's, um, yeah, so I guess preparation, like thinking about it in advance. I mean, what you're describing, it's almost like what I, I think the Stoics refer to as negative visualization. Um, For the day, you kind of survey what might come up and, and you yeah. try to visualize what, what what it would be like when it goes pear-shaped, what could go pear-shaped. And in preparing for it, you you both appreciate what's not 
what's not a problem, what's going really yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but you're also kind of anticipating and, and ready to roll or adapt. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, it's for whatever, you know, different things will help different people. That helps me. Um, there's this movie called Time Again, which is on Netflix, and it's it's just sort of a sweet romantic comedy, but it, it's got this cool premise, which is that this guy can travel, um, can travel in time, but he just he goes back to he can't go way back. He can only go back to things in his own life, and he'll go back um, to like the, something that happened earlier in the day, and he can just run the day again. So if he does something that's embarrassing or he screws something up, he can run the day again. And but the problem is if he runs something again, then he loses, like if he goes back a couple months, anything that would have happened in the intervening time gets lost. So there's like there are consequences. You can't just go back without uh like willy-nilly. You 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 can only go back if um like there there's a there's a price you pay for going back. So eventually he comes to the the, the sort of the wisdom that um and his father also has this ability, so his father tells him this that really the hope is not to have to go back and fix days. The hope is to be able to live your day as though you are already, you already lived it and you were anxious and you missed stuff and you weren't present and you screwed things up. And to be able to, to live each day as though you already lived it and messed it, you know, as though you already were anxious and weren't present for it. And now you can just live it as though you're going back to it. And as though this is like a, the one day you wanted to be able to go back to and that every day has this little thing, you know, little beauties to offer you. And even days that are really hard or painful or, you know, at least you can to, to be able to be present for it. And it, so it's, you know, it's a little hokey, but there's something nice about that idea of um, trying to live a day as though you already, like, imagine that all already happened and you already, you know, got nervous about it or you already, whatever, you know, you already had a hard time with it. Now you can go back and just enjoy it. Mm. Like something I realized when I was in high school and in college, I did some acting and it's like, you know, you're nervous for the play and you do the thing. And then it's usually only the last night or like the last five minutes of it where you're like, shit, I should enjoy this. We worked so hard on this. And, you know, I, like I was just trying so hard to get it right or, or with readings, you know, like uh, I did a lot of readings and early on, I was like, oh, you know, it come to the end. It was only like the last minute of it. I would start to enjoy it. It's like, okay, how to do that, you know, how to enjoy it from the beginning. Right. Um, and that, that's the idea of that movie. Like try to enjoy the day from, you know, if you can. Yeah. You know, as I was listening to you go through that, I was like, where's the, what's the, where's the, the lesson here? What is the, what's the parable in the message, in the message? And it, when you got to it, it, it reminded me instantly of a, a kind of a famous teaching from this Thai teacher, Ajahn Chah, who would say like, if you look at a mug, see that it's already broken. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you know, it, and it will break someday. And right now it's not, but it, 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 it holds that potential. And, right. and it's it, already broken. Yeah. It's already broken. And I do, I think that's really helpful, you know, and to think about your day and things that are going to go like, they've already gone wrong. Your car's already broken down. Like all this stuff's already, you know what I mean? Like somewhere it's, it's going to happen. So to just, yeah, that can, I think that can be helpful. At least so then when it does happen, you're a little less, you don't have such an illusion of perfect control. That's that's sort of how it ties into the technology stuff, which gives us the illusion of control a lot. Yeah, yeah. But we really don't have any more control over, you know, all the big things than we had before. But because we can control, every, you know, like I can, 
it's kind of crazy how much that you get. Like I can get this delivered and I can get my boot and I can check, you know, what movie is playing at this movie theater and, you know, halfway around the country and I can watch. So like, you know, we're all, we're all gods all of a sudden, but of course we're just, you know, we're just as susceptible to all the human, uh, all the, you know, everything that can hurt us or that's going to upset us as we were before, but we're less, but we're, we're less equipped for it because we're, we're more convinced that we're in control. Yeah. And I think the, the, the other word that comes to my mind is gratitude that, that recognizing that it's already broken. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not to sort of, to turn away from that aspect of the world that it's already, it's going to go bad or it's going to get broken at some point, but to just appreciate the phase that it's, that it's, that it's together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot that when you're able to pay attention, you can start to see those, those, those little miracles that are bound right. all over. Right. Right. Whether it's a few leaves or no leaves on a tree yeah. or, or whatever it is, you know, I had forgotten that, that Shakespeare stretch in the book, but I will say, and I read that, you know, towards like end of July, early August, but as, as we've, as the seasons have, have transitioned into the fall, I've been looking at leaves and I, and it's, it's almost like the, 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 the prosthesis of your writing was helping me look at changes. And I was seeing those same kinds of like metaphors and, and associations with other aspects of life and people that I know what that are this phase in their life and where I'm, where am I in relationship to that? And what, do, what, yeah. do, what do they learn? What do you know, I, 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 if anything, I look at older people um, with so much more respect now, like, like, you know, not that I didn't respect them before, but it, it's like a deeper dimension of respect and that they've lived and faced things and started to see things that is just on the hint of my horizon, but that's got to, you know, there's a lot of wisdom gleaned for, or, or hard earned wisdom from that. Yeah. From those changes. Sure. Um, right. And we've got a lot, I mean, fingers crossed, but yeah, we've got a lot ahead of us. <laughs> there's a right. lot, there's a lot to come. Let's hope. There's a lot to be, to be broken. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, 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 we, we sort of, uh, bargain for about an hour today. Um, and, and, and we're right around that time. And I just want to say, it's been so great talking to you and, and getting a chance to listen to. And again, I want to thank you for the heart that you put into your writing. It, it, it like, it's, I don't get to talk to the authors that change my mind all the time. And so it's a real honor for me to, to share a, a conversation with you. Um, wow. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. that, that yeah, no, it, you know, just, you mentioned this before we started taping. I just want to get it out there. I meant to bring it up in the beginning, but you shared that you, your book was just reviewed in the New York book, uh, New York review of books, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, so the, the most prestigious literary review in the world by, by many standards uh, is now featuring your book. And I hope it was a, a, a praise lavishing review. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was nice. I mean, it was favorable. Um, like a lot of the reviews, it's more like they're talking about it. It's a, actually a really interesting piece about digital life and the impact of digital life. And it talks about three books um, and includes a lot of studies. Like the first book is by two professors. So it talks a lot about the studies that they've done and the studies they include. 
mm-hmm. my books included, I think, because mine's a much more personal take. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's where it figures in. But yeah, it's, it's favorable. Um, and nice. Yeah. Nice to see it mentioned. Yeah, no, I would, I, this is, it's, it's a book I've, you know, it, I read it at the end of the summer, but I've gone back to it and read sections again and did my note cards from it. And it, it, it's a beautiful piece of work. So I, I really encourage folks that are listening to, to check it out. Um, as we end two kind of coda like questions, if you could wave your two coda like kind of questions, like coda, coda questions, questions at the end, coda. kind of okay. like okay. the stuff that might be, um, I don't know if that's the use, right. Use the word coda, but just sort of a bracket, um, you know, if there was one practice that you would recommend or to people that were, were wrestling with the relationship to technology or rehabilitating their own attention span, um, is there, if you could, and it's, it's beyond that, if you could wave your magic wand and have like a significant percentage of the population do something that relates to their attention, what might that be? I'm just curious what, if you had that power, that godlike power. Wow, that's my because and, the, and, the, and the, 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 the reason I'm asking it, let me put it in context, is I've been having a series of conversations with another friend of mine, Bob Wright, who is very concerned about uh, the increasing polarization, not just domestically, but within the world, oh, yeah. and and how that polarization, which he sees as being driven by cognitive bias and, and the impulses towards tribalism, that that's going to impede humanity's ability to face the the coming uh, global apocalyptic threats that are that that, are, that pose existential threats to to our species. Um, I completely and, agree. And so, for him, the answer has to do with cognitive empathy. You know, if, if people, if he could wave the wand and get everyone to have more cognitive empathy to see things from other people's perspective more, um, he feels like that would heal this polarization. Mm. Um, now he's a little short on practices. I mean, he has he's he's an he's an enthusiast of meditation. He feels like meditation yeah. is one way to strengthen cognitive empathy. But I'm just interested in talking to like people like you. Like, you know, would there some be something similar that you would weigh in on that you know, if you could wave your wand? Uh, well, I yeah, that's good. My wand's been in the closet for a while, so it's nice to take <laughs> it out. But um, and I agree with him about the problem. I, I mean, I do think you know, inner climate change that, that I talk about and climate change are the two big, the two biggest problems. And they're, they're linked because, because of inner climate change, we're not going to, we're not doing a decent job of dealing with climate change. I mean, for lots of reasons, that's a big part of it. Um, so yeah, I, it's hard to be prescriptive. I don't, and mm-hmm. I usually think that way. Um, yeah. It's not really your style, is it? It's not. No, it's because, because I, you know, what works for, well, yeah, what works for one person is, it, you know, for me, it's taking a walk every morning. It's not looking at my computer, um, you know, and like trying not looking whenever I'm not looking at email until at least, you know, after lunch, things go a lot better. My work goes a lot better. My mood is a lot better. You know, sometimes I'll look or it sucked, sucked in and then, but it's, it's you know, it's, I, I, I'll say this here, here, because this is something that I catch myself on a lot. Um, it's one thing to know, like, oh yeah, things feel a little better when I'm not looking at my email in the morning, or like things are better when I spend more time in nature for me. Um, and 
And then it's another thing to actually do it. Or like, I feel better at night if I read usually than if I watch a movie on Netflix. Not all, you know, like it could be a great movie. It could be a bad book, but generally speaking, you know, like I just feel better, but often I'll go stretches when I'm not doing what I know feels because it's like, that's not that big of a deal. And it's not like, and I like this other thing and it's okay. You know, and it's right here and it's easier. And um, so my advice is not to underestimate that thing that you say, like helps you like for me, the walk in the morning or being in nature or reading or, because then when I'm start when I do them again regularly and I'm back in like a good good routine, it's always more powerful than I remembered it. It's always more important. It, you know, it's one thing to it, for whatever reason. I, I think I don't know if everybody has this, but there can be this tendency to think, "Well, I, like I know the mechanism, I know how that works." So, like then I'm, you know, it's not going to hit me as much because I'm aware of it. You know, like by by acknowledging that, oh, I should be reading, but I'm watching that. You know, then it's not going to be as bad. Well, that's bullet, you know, it's like I know how, you know, that if I drink this much wine, I'm gonna get drunk. So therefore I'm not gonna get as drunk. <laughs> it, you know, chemically, physically, it just doesn't work that way. But somehow I think that way all the time. Um, and so that's my that's my magic wand is for everyone. If you know that there are things that make you feel clearer, calmer, better, more empathetic, more loving, do whatever you can to 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 like set up your life to around to do those things, like orient your life around those things and not just, oh, it's on this. Because, you know, like this whole thing with working out, Socrates talked about this. It's like, well, why do you put so much effort into your bodies, you know, guys of ancient Greece and not into your spirit? Like, how is it that you spend so much time working at, you know, whatever they were doing then to, to work out? And but we have that we have all these crazes. These it's like how can you orient your life around your diet and your whatever, and not think about your you know this other stuff that's so important. So that that would be my magic wand thing. Like somehow to flip the you know the, the craze for um, for whatever working out or this sort of lifestyle stuff, or, and actually turn it into really paying attention to what feeds your you know, your attention, your, what makes your heart larger, what increases you and try to do, and not in like a, oh, I'm, you know, going to post my latest whatever self-care regimen to YouTube, but like actually, actually doing stuff that really, that really nurtures you so you can, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your life more deeply and then probably also be more empathetic. Great. I would, I would underline all of that uh, again, if I were reading it, um, <laughs> it, because everything you said, I was just nodding along uh, as I'm listening, uh, you know, not checking your email till 12, uh, going for that walk, doing the meditation, doing your practice, whatever it is. Um, and then having just, there's such a lack of boundary around these things with, with, yeah. with technology and, and, and you weren't, you weren't getting too prescriptive, obviously, but something I found around that too is just leaving, having a, a one room in the house or the apartment that is is where the devices live, sort of reattaching them to a cord and keep them I, attached to the cord. It like stay there. The, the living room feels like this timeless 
yeah. portal now where, you know, I can think and, and have a converse, a really interesting conversation with anybody that happens to come in, you know, it, so anyway, I just want to underline all that. And um, that's, yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, because yeah, I, like you and like Bob, I really, I, I feel as a species, our survival depends on our ability to rehabilitate the, 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 I don't want to just lim- reduce it to neural structures in the brain, but to re- rehabilitate and, and nurture the, the cognitive capacities that you see as, as being threatened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. So, okay. I hope we can thank it. Yeah. I do too, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and who knows, maybe, you know, if it all goes well and, and there's a, a future generation, few few hundred years from now that looks back and says that Howard Axelrod, he was a priest of perception. But we'll see. <laughs> maybe or we won't see, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Um, well thank you very much, Howie. It's great chatting. And um I look forward to chatting with you again on your novel. Great. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation with Howard Axelrod. Again, if you're interested in his book, his wonderful book, The Stars in Our Pockets, check out that link for you in the show notes. I try to make it easy for you to give that gift, give this book as a gift to either yourself or to anyone you care about in as easy and straightforward manner as possible. The book, again, is really a collection of beautifully written essays, easy to read, exploratory essays around what the digital world is doing to our minds. So check it out. The Stars in Our Pockets. It's a great gift for anyone on your holiday list that you care deeply about and who cares deeply about their life. Okay, thanks again. And until I see you in the next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you very soon. Take good care.